Good evening, and welcome to Cast Dice, a podcast that explores the rich and wonderful world of gaming that we currently reside in. I've said before on this podcast that we are in a bit of a gaming renaissance, and it's just there's just so many good games out there at the moment, be it tabletop game, be it war game, role-playing game, you name it. There are just so many great games. Um, and so we will be exploring the greater world of gaming. Now, I know, I know I've know, i said it in the last couple episodes. We've been doing a lot of bolt action recently, um, and we will continue to do so in the future. It is, well, it is one of the games I like to play, uh, but there are other games that we will be covering, and those are now in the schedule. Um, but before we get too far in, I think it is important that I do introduce our guest. Um, if you've listened to the pilot episode or the first episode of the new Warlord Games official podcast, um, you would know this guy as uh, my guest on that show. Uh, and look, I've gotten a lot of feedback that said what a great guest he was. And look, he's one of my regular opponents. I love talking to him. I love playing with him. And he got me in the last event, and I believe it's my turn to win next. Lee Avery, welcome back to Cast Ice. Thanks for having me again, Brad. New Juarez. So, so many things to talk about, man. Um, I know that you are... So, for those who aren't familiar, in Bolt Action you play British paratroopers. But that isn't your only game. You and I met something like... 13 years ago when you were playing 40k and you've just played uh, a ton of games i'd say since. probably 15 16 years maybe well for you i think i only moved to australia like 14 years ago so oh, okay well that's, yeah it'd be that then yeah, yeah something in the, actually maybe 15 now that i think about it I, I can't tell it's been a really long time so you've played a lot of games lee why don't you uh talk us through some of the games you've played uh, so at the moment, I play, I suppose, my main two games of Bolt Action and War Machine. Uh, and obviously, there's a few variations within War Machine. There's War Machine and Hordes, mm-hmm. uh, both compatible systems from Privateer Press. Uh, and I've been playing War Machine since, I think, the second year it came out. So I think it's probably been about 12, 11 or 12 years now I've been playing. Um and then Hordes was their expansion into uh, more of a, a beast-based system. They've got slightly different game mechanics. Um, the core rules are the same, but how your, your army functions is slightly different, which provides a bit more variety. And you can and, play uh, one army from one game against an army from the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, Certainly. cool. Yeah, so the core rule mechanics are identical, and it's really around your, your warcaster or your warlock functions. Uh, War Machine was the original. And that's uses a what they call a focus mechanic. So you've got big hulking jacks, you know, armed with hammers and cannons and stuff, and you have a focus ability. So your warcaster at the start of every turn replenishes his focus. Usually stats are five, six, seven. They're the usual sort of numbers for most of the models. Mm-hmm. And you can allocate focus to a warjack to boost an attack or damage roll or to make a charge or to perform special actions. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a really it's a replenish at the start of the turn. And the difference with hordes is it's a fury mechanic, and that's where you've got beasts, and your beasts generate the fury, not your warcaster. So, in that situation, you you force your beast to get aggravated and generate a fury token and boost its attack or damage roll, for instance. And then the warlock at the start of the turn 
takes Fury off the beasts that are on the table and, and that then gives him the power to then do his own boost, sort of cast spells and things like that. Mm. And the key thing there with the Fury management is if you, at the start of a turn, you take Fury off a beast and it's still got some, well, it's still angry, it might break its bonds, if you will, and you've got to do a, a threshold check, just kind of like a command check, to see whether it still remains under control or whether it goes wild. And if it goes wild, it basically turns around and just attacks the nearest thing to it, which for most most of the time tends to be your own models. So you yeah, try to manage the fury, um, which is sort of something uh, you manage throughout your turn, whereas focus, it's very much allocating at the start of your turn and thinking about what you want to actually do through the turn. Yeah. Um, in general, the idea is that uh, hordes can hit a lot harder because you can just load up on fury across your army and, and really have a really big, powerful turn but then you run the risk that the following turn you're going to have an excess fury and you're going to have less options because if your beast does go enraged, then you can't, that's its activation for the turn. So you can't then choose to what you want to do with it. It's basically already taken its action. So there's this real balance uh, between the two. And there's sort of, I think we're up to third third edition war machine now mm -hmm. war machine hordes and through that time they've done a fair bit of game balance and they've sort of consolidated some rules and the last edition um where they redid things really cleaned up the rule set it was a very clean rule set sort of in general mm -hmm. uh, to start with but it just sort of streamlined a few things got rid of a few sort of niggly complexities and just sort of said look here's what happens in this situation so it is uh in general, people call it a, a, a tournament system. It is a very uh, specific, clean rule set in that pretty much what things do, it says on the card, is, is what happens. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have to look up the rule book 50 times to try and cross-reference things. There's, there's very, very, very few conflicting rules that exist. Um, and, yeah, they're very good at updating their rules and their cards on a regular basis. They do constant development mm -hmm. uh, and everything's run through basically an app these days called war room and you build your army through that and you can play your game through that so if you've got wi-fi you can connect you know two people can have their ipads or, or tablets uh with the software on it and you can join a local game and you can then look at what your opponent's got in their army and look at their damage trackers or we generally just run uh, run your own system and you can sit there and you can pull the damage on your beasts and you've got all your rules referenced and everything's just sitting there on the app. Uh, and that gets updated very regularly. Whenever there's a new model release, uh, that gets loaded into the app as well. So you can pretty much access everything as soon as it comes out. You don't have to go and buy books. They don't produce books such um, these days full of rules and models and new releases like you uh, get with other sort of systems mm -hmm. with different campaign books or codexes or you know army rosters things like that it's all just run through the one system nice now uh, war machine's one of those games that i don't think i've i, I don't, i'm not sure even i've mentioned its name on almost 300 hours of well war gaming podcasting that i've done um I, I don't know, it, when it started, and I remember distinctly when it came out, um, a lot of my friends from Warhammer went to play it, uh, I think you mm. being one of them, um, and it, I mean, the the big saying back in the day was, play like you have a pair, and it was yep. a pair of dice on it, um, and it was it was that whole, it's a clean game system, it's a competitive game system, but you, it's designed to be 
um, played at a competitive level and that the rules are going to be as clean as possible. They're going to be written in a way that this game can be played in a tournament with as little ambiguity as possible. But it also mm. meant that um, at least when when I first started looking at it, um, a lot of the people who were hyper-competitive from game systems I played tended to go to it. Um, and I know that um, ho the hobby aspect isn't always the strongest. I'm going to say a couple of controversial things yeah. here, Lee, and I'm going to let you, and then I'll let you tell me that I'm wrong and it, maybe I have a dated outlook on the game. But I know from events um, where I've looked over and, uh, you know, often terrain's flat, um, and so you don't really get that 3D, and often I've seen a lot of unpainted models, um, mm -hmm. and... Honestly, you know, you walk by, you go to CanCon, you go to the big show, um, and you look at some game systems, and it looks like oftentimes the people who are playing it are, you know, maybe having a traumatic life experience. They're not actually having fun. Um, and look, Warhammer 40,000 at CanCon, I've had that experience, so I'm not saying it's, it's War Machine alone, but I've seen, like, the War Machine tournaments, you walk by and people are really concentrating now either that makes for an incredibly tight rule set in my mind that everyone's you know really concentrating and trying to you know get it down or um i i don't know it 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 doesn't look as do, fun do people do people play it because they hate they hate themselves is that no the, i don't know like <laughs> as someone who plays it um and then who plays other things like you know you go to um i i went to a malifaux event recently and it it looked a bit more like a block party than an actual tournament um and you know bolt action somewhere in between but uh you know i, I just look at it man man these kids aren't having any fun um is yeah, that look, so talk I, I me through it's, it um yeah look i think what War Machine was at the start was, um, you know, as you say, play like you've got a pig. You know, it's it's very much a, a big and bold um, sort of attitude. And when the game first released, I mean, I, I started about a year after they they kicked it off, and they had a, a second book release which brought in some new models and that sort of thing. Um, there, there was a very limited amount of things that you you could get access to and what you had, and so we. You know, armies were pretty similar. You knew exactly what everybody had. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was sort of three, four casters per faction and that sort of, you know, and there was only four four factions and a couple of mercenaries at the time. Um, now you're talking there's, I think we're up to 14, 13 or 14 different factions mm -hmm. that you can play and it ranges from five war casters, I think, in minimum up to some of them, I think are up about 15 or 16 different war casters wow. in the factions now. So we're talking, there's, you know, you could potentially be playing a pool of 140, 150 different war casters across the table from you. Um, so, you know, creating an army is very different. Um, in regards to people looking serious, look, it's really a game where you are going for an angle and you're trying to combo things up with your own army to mm. go for the killing move. Um, it's Or you're exploiting an opponent's mistake. So it's very much a trying not to make errors yourself in regards to placing your models or setting things up or trying to go for a reasonable trade of I'll put this forward, you'll kill it, then I'll kill you back, you know, that kind of chess trade mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, and I think that... The, like I said, the, the recent game update, uh, uh, the balance 
particularly in their tournament system, I think they've got it pretty spot on. Uh, they have balanced out different missions with different objectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, different things require you to have troops or war beasts or solos to capture an objective, a flag or a zone. So they're really forcing people to take a bit of a mix of an army because you could lose on a mission um, based on not having the right figures in your in your army and someone can lock you out of a zone and to score points and, and beat you that way. Um, so there's sort of a, a fair bit of game balance through that. Uh, the unpainted army thing, look, it's it's a controversial thing and it's uh, certainly something... I know in the Victorian scene, uh, early in the day, we were very much... Uh, a lot of us came from the 40K and Warhammer background. Mm-hmm. And so for us, tournaments were very much around you know, having a nicely presented army because it formed part of your scoring mm-hmm. for, for events generally. And War Machine didn't have a painting component um, for quite a while. So there's a few different formats within the tournament system. Um, I know back in the day we actually we would set up separate prizes for painting here and there at some events mm-hmm. just so that way we did encourage people to, to bring along painted armies because it, it just looks better. As far as, you know, observers walking past makes it a more attractive-looking game. You generate interest. If you can generate interest in the game, you generate more people to play, the hobby grows. Um, So, look, it's probably five, maybe six years ago, um, Privateer introduced um, one of the formats within their tourney system required a painted army. It's called Hardcore. Mm -hmm. So it was very much a very limited... Uh, point size and it had one specific mission and but it had a painting requirement and there was a specific medal you could get um, as a hardcore painting um, prize out of the four medals for that event um, I, I've got one nice. <laughs> so in, my, in my cupboard uh, that I picked up at one event uh, but hardcore events are also they weren't run too often as well because they were so restrictive in what um, you could do yeah. uh, that event is now sort of morphed into what we call the champions format is the current system, mm-hmm. and that has a, a painting requirement, so your army must be fully painted. Uh, and they basically, it's if you think back, it's basically three three colours and, and and some basing sort of thing. Uh, basically, no undercoat showing is is sort of the general rule of thumb. Yeah. So the cha- yeah, and the champions format again, it's sort of evolved out of that hardcore one. It's got a set number of sort of different awards that you can receive. One of them's being a, a painting as well, and then the. Um, the castes that you can take is actually restricted. So for each faction, instead of being able to choose from a dozen or 15 different casters, they're actually restricted down to four. So it's a very limited pool that you can choose from and that your opponents can choose from as well for each faction. And it's effectively the the last two casters they've released for that faction so that the newest things, uh, and then two that have um, not received a high rotation of play in events so Privateer runs quite a few events and gathers a lot of data across the world. Um, they look at what's popular and basically say, well, what's not popular? We're going to put that into this format and you can use that uh, to play. Mm-hmm. And so to try and get people to think about different casters, how to use them differently, different combinations and provide a bit more variety than everyone turning up every game with a Haley or a Karchev kind of list, which are two of the sort of bigger no-name ones. Right on. Yeah, I, just going back to something you said before, I mean, when you when you see people getting new players into game systems, 
Um, I know that quite a few people who I've talked to in recent years um, have picked up bolt action because they've walked by at an event, walked by a CanCon or at Moab or at some of the other big events, and they've looked at these gorgeously set out tables with fully painted armies and people having fun pushing models around. Um, And I know it's not just bolt action. There are other lots of fantastic games where people have the same... um, experience uh, Malifaux in particular I know quite a few people have picked it up um, by just walking by and going wow what's this and because so much hobby at least in Victoria um, the Victorian scene has so many well-painted models and so many people that look like they're having fun as I said the last event I played in looked a lot like a blog party um, and you just go okay, people look at that and they're drawn to it and they're they gravitate towards it Whereas, um, you know, if people go to, I'm thinking of CanCon a couple of years ago, and it was a lot of people who didn't play fantasy were looking at the tables and going, what is that in sort of like a really negative manner? Because the, the, the tournament had way less terrain than it was supposed to. Um, some of the terrain fell through. Um, I don't know what happened. But so in order to play, they actually uh, one of the missions that you had to have for that weekend was one called I think it was called the Watchtower. And you had to have a tower to like as an objective. And you had to capture it and put models in it. Well, what they did was they took a piece of paper that looked that had uh, stonework on the outside and they color photocopied it. Um, you know, however many I think it was like 120 players at that event. And so they photocopied it 60 times um, and then taped it. So it was like a little cylinder and stuck it in the middle of every table. And for some tables, there was, you know, maybe a, a very flat hill, maybe a forest and that. And you look at it and go, that's that's crap. Like put a <laughs> put a book on that or something. You know what's going on? Um, yeah, it just it, it looked bad and it it actually events like that um on one hand the gameplay uh i mean i actually played in that event and i had a blast um and some of the tables look great but it just did not do a lot for the you know the promotion of the game i guess um and i guess yeah and so i know that that's kept me away from war machine that and I, I look the the beast aesthetic. I like. I like a lot of the more um, the feral type models, but I, the warjack stuff never jumped at me. So I was like, meh. Um, but you know, I guess I don't know. What do you? Th- am I? What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, um, I attended CanCon again this year, and and uh, I just gotta say the fantasy situation hasn't improved. Um, Looks like they've just gone and laminated bits of paper now to sort of say forest and that. I think part of that for fantasy, though, is you have large regiments on bases ranked up. Yeah. Um, trying to move that across and you hit a forest full of trees and things, it's it's very hard to manoeuvre those kinds of models around. Um, yeah. I think 40K and, and Warhammer sort of models in general, I mean, I've been out of that scene for a few years now and... Um, yeah, I walk past those tables at big events and there's just massive models that you know, just look out and I'm like, they're just taking up half the table by yeah. themselves. Um, so, you know, you've got to think about placement and I suppose being able to have a, a clean game, if you will, in regards to what's happening here, where am I moving this? Or this just fell off a hill because it was too steep and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, 
War Machine events can also be a bit varied. You know, I've played in some with similar terrain and mm-hmm. certainly you talk to high-level competitors, they are very much in favour of that 2D printed terrain because line of sight's a big thing. They'll break out their laser pointers mm-hmm. and be looking down at millimetres and all that sort of crazy stuff. Um, and, you know, it is a game of measurement and consideration. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I like playing on a bit of terrain and, uh, whenever I've built terrain, it's always been for a plane. It's not for display. So it's always had, you know what, my hill's got a very flat surface, but that's because I don't want things falling over. My forests, they've all got removable trees because exactly. you need to be able to move stuff in and out. So make stuff modular. Houses are basically built either solid or they've got, you know, remove the roof and you can move in and out easily kind of thing. Um, so I think the other thing is when you look at large events, you're also relying on, you know, one or two people that are organising and running these things. Most people, or very few people, would have sufficient terrain to run an event beyond sort of, I suppose, 10, 20 people um, for those that are dedicated. So you're often relying on other people bringing stuff along. Uh, Certainly the bolt action scene, uh, a lot of people bought terrain to CanCon to make up tables. Uh, You know, it's not too hard for one person to make up a, a good table's worth of terrain. If you can get a few players to bring that along, it helps make the event better. Uh, what I've generally seen in certainly the war machine side of things is people aren't that as invested in the terrain side of things. So um, those that do generally build some will have a table or two tables worth because it's a it's a four by four table as well, yeah. not a six by four sort of scaling. Um, so it's a bit easier to put some on. You only need sort of eight to ten pieces for most of the missions is sort of the recommended amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's simple things, walls, forests, buildings, obstructions, rock formations, whatever. It doesn't need to be crazy. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a bit mixed, but it's, I think it's like any other game system. I've certainly played on a few different 40K tables back in the day um, that were variable quality and oh, yeah. um, playability. If you ever played on that Aztec Pyramid one at Ark, that was... Uh, mm-hmm. Nice-looking table as far as playability goes. Oh, it was a nightmare just trying to place models and mm-hmm. stuff constantly falling over and rolling around and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But So, you know, I, I think it's War Machine certainly has a reputation for unpainted models and uh, flat terrain, and I think it's certainly valid. Um, but I think also at the other end of the spectrum, there is a lot of hobbyists within the within the war machine community that do spend a lot of time painting their models and do spend a lot of time making nice terrain and yeah. trying to play the game and make it look good. So, you know, I've always taken the view, lead by example. I turn up with painted stuff to events, mm-hmm. do my best to sort of promote things um, and try to avoid the uh, unpainted. I stuck everything in a box with some super glue, shook it a bit, and there was my army. <laughs> Oh man, I've seen too many of those. Hey, let's yeah. let's segue, shall we? Um, because let's talk about an event w- that you and I just recently played in, where the terrain, while we're talking about terrain, was schmig. I mean, it was really, really outstanding. Um, so you and I both played, and Tristan from the Bacon Burgers podcast ran an event. Uh, I guess not last week, on the weekend before, called Operation Heavy, and I talked about it a little bit on uh, the Ghost Army podcast. But uh, I think it should. We should go back and talk about it a little bit. Um, I mean, as you say, in in the bolt action world, there are, or in other in other game systems, there are those people who are passionate about running events and who really take it upon themselves to make sure that there are, there is good quality terrain on the tabletop, and they go beyond having that one or two tables. 
Um, I know that I have, I'm working on my seventh table at the moment for an event that I'm running in a couple of weeks. But um, I know another guy who's very passionate about his terrain, probably more so than me, uh, and that's Tristan. And so when we went to play, he had just finished a, I mean, he'd been looking at what tables were showing up at local events uh, and, you know, what kind of terrain. And he wanted to do something that was very different. And so he, I mean, he has terrain for a variety of landscapes for World War II, but one of the ones we just hadn't seen was sort of a, a dense jungle Pacific uh, sort of situation, and he put together a new table for that. And you and I actually played on it. Um, what did you think about the the terrain in general, and then more specifically about that new jungle table? Because I really dug playing on it. What did you think? Yeah, I, I think the terrain in Melbourne, certainly for events in bolt action, I think has been exceptional. Mm. Um, it's very much a game, in my view, that requires a good amount of terrain on the table. Um, it doesn't work if you're fighting across an open field because it just removes any tactics. Like it's really around bunny hopping from cover to cover into buildings behind walls, making use of what's there, mm -hmm. which is what, you know, historically people do. You don't, as a soldier, just run across the field in the open. It's suicide. You, you know, crawl up the side, you use a ditch, right. you take cover behind hill, that sort of thing. So um, for me, it's been great coming into the community in the last few years and seeing the quality of some of the tables. And I think given that Bolt Action has some very specific rules around things like walls and buildings and how to move in them and over them and behind them mm -hmm. and how to move within them, you know, it, it forces people when they're making tables to think, okay, well, if I'm going to build this building, I need to actually think practically, okay, I need to be able to remove the levels and remove the roof and allow exactly. people to be able to put stuff in different levels. And I think we're, we're sort of blessed by having quite a few terrain building manufacturers out there um, that are producing buildings that can do that for us and in the right scale and the right time periods and they look really good. So, you know, it's certainly uh, locally Knights of Dice produces some really good stuff. Um, so good. You then look overseas and... Uh, Foreground is another one. TT that, uh, Combat, Sarissa. TT Combat's the other one. Yeah, yeah. Sarissa. So, you know, so they're, they're probably the big four in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, you know, I like foreground for the pre-painted sort of factor. Um, easy to put something together for uh, beginners. And, you know, you just need a bit of PVA glue and sort of tidy up the bits as you cut them out of the pieces. Um, the Sarissa stuff uh, can be quite good detailed. They produce a good range of things across different theatres. So if you want a bit of a bit of range there, uh, TT do a, a reasonable range. Uh, they've got some good sci-fi stuff in there as well. Uh, and then Knights of Dice, our local one, um, produce a range of sci-fi. And they've got a specific um, sort of bolt-action style one called Letters from Normandy, uh, which a lot of the local players use. And they produce some different scale buildings as well. So you can get stuff from small little huts and houses up to a larger style multi-story cafe or cinema and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, we were kind of spoiled for choice so, and it really comes down to do you want to pay a little extra for the foreground stuff but not have to really probably pick up a paintbrush if you don't want to versus if you're buying some of the others, you're going to have to spend a bit more time, you know, prettying it up but it then does allow some variety and creativity and for you to actually do things your own way. So... Definitely. I think, yeah, we were quite spoiled in that sense. Um, certainly at the, the recent event for Operation Heavy, uh, there was I think six or seven tables set out and 
there's, you know, a couple of sort of nice tables with sort of a few buildings and some sort of woods or cemeteries mm-hmm. and hedges and walls and roads and a good mix of stuff. So we had a few sort of similar on those lines. Uh, there's the old Stalingrad table, which uh, everyone loves to hate, uh, which is effectively uh, a, basically a table full of ruins. So it is chockers with blown out factories and buildings Mm -hmm. um there's about four or five of those on the table uh there's a single roadway running up the middle which is just cratered and covered with debris and then there's all these um movable pieces that uh you know can be rearranged and move around basically just rubble piles and destroyed stuff and just craters yep craters and that sort of thing so it's, it's a really cover heavy table if you will there's Mm no building structures as such so you don't have to worry about the old he through the window uh but at the same time it's a lot of rough ground so you don't really move fast across it or through it you've really got to maneuver around some piles if you want to run your troops and vehicles are very going to be slow going there's not many clear avenues for uh sort of wheeled vehicles to cruise through Mm -hmm. or tracks and things like that so it does tend to sort of favour, depending on the mission, again, a defender attacker kind of thing, it can be a bit bit one-sided, a bit more difficult, a bit of a slog. Um, so I had that table, and then we had the jungle table, uh, which I also had the pleasure of playing on with yourself. That's right. Uh, and that's obviously debuted, and look, it's quite nice. I think um, it comes down to how opponent, I suppose, agreement between the opponents as to how they want to treat the terrain. Exactly. I know we labelled a lot of things as uh, we had some bamboo stands sort of things on there and we decided to say they block line of sight um, because otherwise it was... Dense terrain. Yeah, yeah, we treated them as dense terrain. So if you were shooting, you couldn't see through them Mm -hmm. um, effectively. Uh, So And and that helped to break up the lines of sight across the table because otherwise it was very much a... You'd end up with a shooting gallery with just cover saves here and there and mm-hmm. it uh, wouldn't provide much maneuverability. Um, and I think that's the key thing is you need to build terrain to force people to make decisions about where to deploy and how to approach the exactly. opponent. You don't want people just basically just going, oh, okay, well, they're just there. I'm just going to move forwards directly at them and just keep shooting every turn and just, you know, I'm American, so I'm not taking movement penalty, so I've mm-hmm. just got to worry about cover, you know, and then, you know, forcing opponents to think about, well, do I go down or just stay up and that sort of thing. So... I think it was quite good, you know, treating it that way. I know some others just treated it as soft cover and, and were shooting through it, so they tended to have a bit more of a shooty game. Uh, I think for us allowing it to be treated as dense and therefore blocking line of sight meant we had a bit more manoeuvrability, a bit more cover to sort of move up and huddle behind. Right. And then also it created some more closer engagements. You can imagine sort of coming around a big stand of bamboo and, oh, there's a enemy squad there better shoot them up or they'll get the jump on me and that sort of thing so i think for us a lot of it came down to who was drawing the dice and and being able to have the initiative each turn as well and being able to take the first action uh but at the same time because of the the way the terrain was set up and and you sort of created all these crossfire lanes and things like that Mm -hmm. uh you know you also ran the risk of oh well they get first dice but then i get the next one so Many opportunities where it's like, okay, I've got the first dice, but do I take care of that situation, that situation, or that situation? It was just a plethora of decisions to be made each turn, and I think it uh, it was it became very much a bit of a trade-off game for us uh, to a certain extent. 
Yeah, I definitely found that game to be one of the more tactical games I'd played in a while. And I know we played a lot, and we played other games, as in other games of bolt action. And it always comes down to a fairly tight tactical game. But as you say, because we set up the fire lanes, because then we were sort of ambushing around corners and trying to figure out the next two moves ahead, the the first four or five dice every turn really became pivotal. And it just, it really, and then, so by default, then the last couple of dice on a turn did as well as you were trying to set things up for the next turn. And it really made for a really rich and interesting game. And as you say, the terrain really made that happen. Um, I know recently you and I played a game. We were trying out my new uh, Shinto temple board that I'm going to be um, using at my event. And uh, when we set it up, uh, you know, I wasn't thinking, and we left a great big open spot in the middle um, mm. that had very minimum ter- minimal terrain. And so it turned into we're going to have you're going to have some squads and some buildings on one side. I'm going to have some squads in and around some buildings on the other side. And then it was who's going to dash across first. And in that way, it made for a really interesting experience as well. But I feel like the game where we played and in the in the again the claustrophobic confines of that jungle really I think that was a better game because of the terrain if that makes sense um, yeah, yeah yeah it wasn't a Mexican standoff it was a I'm gonna I can push up on this flank because I have cover and I can dash from here to there I, I think. You used to ambush a bit within the game. Yeah, uh, I've been I've that, been experimenting with it a lot, and that forced me to avoid certain channels, if you will. Mm-hmm. It was either a case of, oh, do I push through and, and risk being shot, or do I just, you know, stay behind this cover or go a different direction? So that mm-hmm. that sort of directed my decision making to an extent. And I think people don't use ambush enough sometimes. Agreed. Um, and it's it's it can be a good thing for board control. If you've got the right unit, put it in the right spot and, uh, you know, potentially just create some fear. I think sometimes, you know, you still as an opponent, you got to sit there and think, oh, yeah, he's got an on ambush, but you know what? I'll trigger it off. I'm still long range. There's still a cover factor. He's not going to be hitting me with too much. I'm just going to sit there and take it. You know, you still got to consider those things. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it was a, a good little game. I mean, certainly... Got a, I got a win out of it, just for the record. Oh, uh, you jerk. <laughs> you and your lieutenant charging around a corner and getting closer to my trucks than I was and killing two trucks. Yeah, uh, empty look, transports. Oh, I was playing a little more aggressively than I should have, and I forgot that you had an LT hiding behind a tree stand, and it ran out and literally got just you know, an inch closer than my squad that was next to the transports. Um, you were three inches away. I was four inches away. And my two transports went poof and uh, they were gone. And you were all of a sudden two order dice ahead. And, and then I just couldn't kill your veteran stuff. I pinned, I put all the pins on them, uh, yeah. but I just couldn't kill enough of your bros to make them disappear. And you got me, man. So next time gadget. Next but, time. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's it's it's an interesting one because at CanCon had that situation come up with empty transports where I my opponent moved him up because he needed the fire support mm-hmm. and he was trying to capture an objective, so his troops ran over to the objective, but his transports were left hanging out in the wind. So you know, yeah. running unit up to him, 
you know, it's a valid valid tactic. Oh, it is. Um, and it certainly, you know, it helps remove a threat. But I think, again, the terrain we were playing on forced you to an extent to have to push forwards to they get did. the angles. Yeah. And it just happened that, you know, you just brought two of them up into that sort of area and I just went, oh, hang on. And I was, you know, I was thinking of shooting at him and then I'm like, oh, hang on, end of turn, I can just run up. And a lot of it uh, for bolt action for me is just the sequencing of people taking actions. If something's mm-hmm. activated, you can then either sit there and say, well, I can now ignore that. For the rest of the turn, I shouldn't be focusing shots mm-hmm. on it. I can deal with it later in the turn because it's now no longer an, an additional threat, whether it's a unit or a tank or whatever. So Agreed. I think that's sort of part of the tactics within the BA world. Well, just to go back to what you were talking about with Ambush a minute ago. Um, mm. So Operation Heavy was a 1,300-point event, and it was everyone was encouraged to take a heavy tank. So, of course, I took a bunch of soft skins. <laughs> Oops. Um, and that was fine. Um, but a couple of things I want to touch on on that. I was taking an auto-Sahariana list, which, if you're not familiar, it's like the Italian version of the LRDG. Um, a lot of trucks, um, veteran trucks with a machine gun on the front and then a pintle-mounted light auto cannon or light AT gun on the back, um, backed up with some uh, veteran riflemen in trucks uh, with you know a smattering of special teams. Um, I didn't have any big HE. Um, I didn't have any, I mean, I, the light auto cannons was my HE. Uh, I didn't really get into a lot of, I don't know what you would consider standard uh, BA tropes of, of what's good and what's bad. It was just a lot of fun, and I zipped around. But a couple of things. So as Lee mentioned, um, there was maybe, I think there were seven Ada tables at the event. Uh, I think it was seven, and two of them, uh, one was a Stalingrad table. One was the Bocage table. Had a lot of so the Bocage table had a lot of Bocage, duh, um, and fields. But the way that it was set up, um, there was a few roads. But other than that, my trucks really couldn't drive anywhere because there was terrain that would block wheeled vehicles. So it really forced me into a well, where am I going to go? I, I can't even see my opponent if I'm here. Um, so it really created a, 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 a situation where I was, I was playing as the attacker in um, point defense against um, a really aggressively built Marine list that had um, three Stuarts and the M3. I'm uh, sorry, two M3s and a Satan. Um, and a variety of, you know, highly tooled up Marine squads and these, that, and the other thing. And I was just getting dismantled. Um, but I was able to zip on in the last turn with a couple of my things to outflank, to go up right to the objectives that I could get to. And I ended up drawing, but it made for a very interesting game for me just because I was just getting pasted the entire time. Um, but I, I wouldn't have played that. I couldn't have played that any other way, given the terrain, given the mission, and given my opponent. And so it really did, um, it, it created an interesting gaming experience for me that I really enjoyed. But knowing that two out of seven uh, of the tables, I don't know, were that way. I don't know if I'd ever take my Auto Sahariana to an event like that again. Um, not that it wasn't fun to play, I had a great time playing it, um, but I think think that it would it was just really hard to play on that table and had i played in stalingrad i think it would have been worse um and not to say that the terrain was bad it was exceptional but the way that i built my list sort of hamstrung me um to a degree 
Um, yeah, I, I think that's that's your risk with events though and terrain is there's always going to be some tables that aren't going to be suitable for a particular force. Right. Well, you know, if you if you take a balanced, quote unquote, balanced, well-rounded force, guess what? You don't have that problem. Um, but I was trying for something very specific and very themey. Um, and I, and I, that's my own problem. Um, but pl- luckily for me, I have plenty of other bolt action armies that I'm happy playing. Uh, but if that was my only army, look, I might feel a little hard done by. Um, but again, I probably would have been at fault because it was my damn fault for making that army. So eh. anyway, the other thing that I, I really wanted to do on the weekend besides sort of getting my feet wet in bolt action competitive playing again, because I hadn't done that in quite a while, um, I wanted to really experiment with Ambush. um, And I really wanted to... I mean, I'd seen a lot of people tell me recently that medium machine guns aren't worth taking, um, that Italians can't win games, and that um, light AT guns aren't worth the points. Uh, And I... I think I successfully proved all of that not true. Um, Italians, especially in a list that was hemorrhaging um, order dice as far as them being taken off the table because I didn't have any armor, um, that was brutal. I had to keep, you know, I had to tactically keep targeting little things to, or trying to eliminate enemy units just to keep up to to not have that my national rule kick in and to have that minus to my leadership because that would have been the end of me. Um, But then having my light AT gun and my medium machine gun, so at a 1,300 points, that's 100 points worth of investment for me. Um, Mm. Putting those out, I guess it was more than 100 because they're a veteran. Um, What, 130 points total? Uh, Yeah, 120, 130. Yeah. Um, And it... That was sensational just because I kept them on ambush most of the time. Um, and they really were a deterrent. Um, they were a deterrent for tanks. Like, do I really want to get popped in the face with an a light AT gun? And look, it's not going to ruin people's days. Like, you're, I couldn't have hurt your Sherman to the front, but I definitely put some pins on it. Um, yeah, and that's the thing. If 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 you're an ambush, I move up. I go, all right, well, I'll take the hit, take the risk. Mm-hmm. But you hit me and put a pin on me. All of a sudden, another negative one to hit. So whatever I was moving up to shoot, suddenly I'm not going to be as effective. And then I've got a pin on me for the start of the next turn. Agreed. You cause another. All of a sudden, I'm on two pins, and mm-hmm. I'm like, Ugh. well, one of those so, things yeah. is in the game. If you get hit, you take a pin. But then when you pass an order test, you you make it disappear. But if you're on ambush and you people advance into the front of you and you hit them and you pin them while they're doing that, then they have to take that minus one to hit. And you're sort of forcing your opponent to take a negative to hit you, um, which and that's the way the MMG worked for me as well. Um, I was especially in my first game where I was playing an American player, I, I put my MMG up at the front and set it up. And every time he popped a unit around, uh, the MMG would fire at them, maybe take a guy off, but it always would put a pin on, and then they were minus one to hit at me, you know, to shoot at me. And that minus one was huge. Um, it basically evened out the American special rule um, and, you know, whittled down dudes at the same time. And I thought it was a great investment. It just really helped me to start throwing those pins on um, just to minimize the hits I was taking as the Italian player with a ton of soft skins. 
Um, and it really, it really helped. It just helped to keep the, the, you know, the hits I was taking, uh, it was helping to lessen that. And that really went a long way given the structure of my army. While we're talking events, let's also talk, I guess, about the event that I have coming up, Operation Wolf. Um, so while Tristan ran a 1,300-point list that was, or, sorry, event that encouraged people to take a big tank, um, I wanted to do something that was slightly different. Now, a lot of the local events have been mixed up, and um, the guys who've been running the local events have been done a good job of giving us a variety of play experiences. Um, but a long time ago, I used to run a series of small point events to encourage new players. Um, and as I hadn't sort of run anything but a tank war event in a long time, I thought I would do that again. Um, and so I've created this event called Operation Wolf. Um, and I expected maybe 10 players to show up. Uh, I had the terrain for that set, was all ready to go, had my venue. Um, and then I sold out the first day. Uh, and so I, I've sort of bumped out as far as I can go. And we're now at 26 players. Um, it's a 900-point bolt-action event. Uh, I haven't put any restrictions on it other than asking for people to bring a standard platoon. Um, but it's um, it's really interesting at what people are turning in. And I'm really happy to see a large number of new players. Uh, weirdly, a lot of friends from old game systems uh, or other game systems are hopping over and are giving bolt action a try. And so um, we're seeing a ton of new types of armies being used. Um, new versions of armies that, you know, maybe you're, oh, you know, you're used to seeing Germans, but all of a sudden we have a new DAC player. All of a sudden we have a new SS player. All of a sudden, you know, there's a new Finn player in the mix. And you're looking at these armies going, wow, that's really different from what we've seen in the past. Um, and it's just really cool to see this fresh influx of players. Really excited. Um, I'm also really excited that, you know, I've got such great prize support. Um, Warlord themselves, uh, and of course the local distributors of Warlord, who've always been huge uh, supporters of local events, War and Peace Games, um, John and Ian, man, oh, love those guys. Um, they Both of those companies have sent over uh, a large amount of prize support. Uh, Trenchworks, fine makers of uh, resin World War II vehicles, amongst other stuff, um, have also sent over some prizes. And man, we just have... Uh, I, I think I have a, a, you know, people are paying $15 to come play, and I think they're leaving with something significantly more than that um, on top of getting to play all day, which is just, oh God, man, we're just we're just blessed with price support. Um, it's just amazing. Um, but anyway, one of the big things that I wanted to do, um, and I talked about this on the most recent Ghost Army podcast, was I really go out of my way when I go to an event to try and take something new because it's always a great opportunity for me to use that as um, a fire, so to speak, to get me to finish something. Because <clears throat> otherwise, you know, my attention deficit disorder kicks in a little bit and I go from, ooh, I'm going to paint this tank, ooh, I'm going to paint this truck, ooh, I'm going to paint this unit, and they're from three different armies. And while I have a ton of bolt-action armies um, that I can just keep adding to, uh, it, it means that I don't do anything drastically new. Well, for... For this event, Operation Wolf, uh, I really wanted to add another table or two. And about six months ago, I bought and built a Shinto shrine board worth of terrain. Um, so like a samurai looking board um, that I really wanted to use for bolt action. So I've now started to paint that. 
Um, I also got a new winter town mat from Cigar Box Games um, or Cigar Cigar Box mats um, that I absolutely love that I've been adding to. Um, I've just finished building the Warlord Walls kit to add to it, um, which is something new for me. I'd never actually built that kit. Um, I also uh, bought six buildings from Knights of Dice that Lee was talking about a minute ago. And um, so their Tabula Rasa range, which means it's really simple terrain, but they have like Viking huts that you can buy um, or Viking buildings. So I bought six of those. Uh, and the... There, I was blown away at the price. In Australia, you t- typically pay a lot of money for shipping, and just prices tend to be higher. I got each one of those buildings for between $13 and $15. So six buildings, I mean, I got that for the price of what you'd normally get for maybe two if you're lucky. Uh, and then um, I've been messing around with those. So I bought some cheap, uh, for $2, I bought a pack of uh, kitchen towels from... Big W or the equivalent of Walmart down here. Uh, and I cut the towels into strips and PVA'd them to the roof. Uh, you looked at some terrain tutorials online and did that and was really happy with how that looked and then sealed it all with watered down PVA. And mate, looks perfect thatch. Uh, and I've just been priming them up this morning and I'm hoping uh, this afternoon, once the everything's primed up, I can just you know, base coat and then paint. Um, but one of the things I've done with those is they have doors and windows on the front and back, but they don't have anything on the sides. They're just blank walls with the, um, the framework to give it some texture, um, which looks great. But I really, for bolt action, walls and door, uh, sorry, doors and windows are such a huge feature of terrain that I've actually created shutters using um, just little pieces of plastic card, and I've stuck them to the side. And once I paint them on, um, I mean, just priming them, all of a sudden they look like shutters. And I'm really excited to have six new buildings on a new board with new walls. And I bought uh, the Flames of War Frozen Ponds uh, train box, uh, and I'm going to use some of those as well. And I'm just really excited about having this new board. Um Lee, you are still there, right? Yes. Yeah, you muted yourself. I was like, he's quiet. What's going on? So yeah. you've been following my building these. Um, I know that you you and I have talked a little bit about them offline. What do you are are you happy with the way that um you know the buildings look, the boards coming together? Is there anything that you'd like to see on this new board, given sort of the what I've added so far? Um. Yeah, I think it's looking good. I mean, I've played on your snow table in the past. Uh, I think the frozen ponds are a good idea. I mean, mm. as we had a chat about the other day, uh, while you were <laughs> making a decision whether to purchase or not, yeah, exactly. I think it's it's probably more around how you define the terrain, mm, um, agreed, and, and as to what's passable and, and what's not. So, I think one thing I know that we've done in the past for some other events, not bolt action ones, but other ones I participated in was having a little cheat sheet for each table to say what some of the terrain was and how it should yeah. be treated. Um, just to create a consistency across event, particularly when you've got, you know, some of the, some of the bigger ones with lots of people around, 
different people can sort of interpret things different ways and you sort of want to create an even playing field and also stuff you know some some players can be a bit more overbearing than others and, and can be a bit oh, you know i think we should treat it this way because yeah. it, it might be advantageous to them or whatever and a less experienced opponent may not recognize it at the start and then halfway through the game they're like oh crap that's just yeah. really causing me problems now so you know i think things like that particularly that that winter table where you've got some quite large hills, but then you've got a lot more buildings and fences and things like that. But the frozen ponds, for example, as we discussed, you know, maybe treat them as, you know, rough ground for troops, Mm -hmm. but impassable for vehicles. You know, if a vehicle goes across a frozen pond, that's probably going to end up under the pond. Um, Whereas troops going across, they're going to be cautious. They're not going to be, you know, sprinting across. They're going to have to take their time and be, be careful. So I think it's just probably around setting a clear definition at the start as to, to how certain things should be treated across the various tables and whether that's a little cheat sheet on each table to say, hey, this table's got this on it, this is how you should treat it so everyone's sort of consistent and aware. Agreed. Um, so one of the other tables that I have is sort of a ruined city and I've been picking up the pre-painted Battlefield in a Box urban ruins um, as I can find them as they've been out of print for a while. And there's a local shop that seems to dig them up from time to time and put them on their shelves and whenever they do... Uh, I snatch up one or two and add it to the collection. So I pretty much have a ruined city um, that goes with a battle mat that I bought from Deep Cut Studios, one of their cloth mats that I love. Um, But one of the things that I've noticed, having played on that mat quite a lot recently, um, is that there are so many roads. And so that board really favors wheeled vehicles. And I love wheeled vehicles. And so it wasn't even until I'd played on it a couple times, then I'd realized that I actually bought something that was more advantageous to me than my opponent typically and went, oh, I, you know, I openly winced when I realized that and went, oh, this is not good. Um, but it really, I mean, it makes it look interesting. It's a different play experience. So I'm okay with one table being like that. Uh, but so my new cigar box mat, I bought it um, knowing it has some roads built into it, but I was really thinking when I looked at it, how can I make it different from the other one? Well, one, it's got less roads, uh, and two, the roads are wider, so it makes for a different tactical experience as far as, you know, you don't have to run your vehicles single file down a road or anything like that. Mm. Um, You can run things up side by side. But I was also looking at that when I was buying the frozen ponds, the shop also had the Flames of War Snowdrift box. Now, if you look at this thing, they, you know, they're little kidney shapes of white patches. Um, and some of them are wider and bigger than others, but they're all fairly small. And I think you get six of them or five of them in the box. Um, but I, I kept looking at them and I keep looking at this box because I keep seeing it in different shops. And I keep not buying it because it's really short. If you actually line up um, a 25 or 28 mil model next to it, typically these things are about as tall as the base. So you're not, or maybe the model's shoes. So you're not actually getting any cover. And though they look nice, on a snowboard, if you put these down on a white tabletop, they're just going to blend right in. Um, But then I kind of had an epiphany in the shower, as you do. Um, and I was thinking, if I got those and put them on as, you know, snow patches on the roads, all of a sudden they could break up the, the, the roaded sections of that board and it could make it 
harder to navigate. Now, your, your tanks can probably just plow through it, but trucks can't. Um, and the way, and that got me looking at the bolt action terrain rules. And we're going to get more into that in a minute. But what, so if, if we put snow patch, so the roads rules say that tracks and trucks, vehicles in general, double their movement on roads as long as they stay on the roads. They have to do their entire move on the road. Um, now that means that the board that I have that's entirely roaded, um, is, you know, really great for those armies. However, if you have to go off the road, you have to drop to your normal movement. So I was thinking, and, the, and being on the road and being able to zip around, um, you have a limited number of turns. One of the most commonly misunderstood rules by new players in bolt action that I found is how, the, how vehicle maneuvers work, how many turns vehicles can make. Um, wheeled vehicles can take two turns, Tracked vehicles can take one um, if they're advancing. So, but half tracks can move twice and move at the slower speed. So that's why they're the combination of both. But that got me thinking, if you put some snowdrifts down on some of these roads, sure, there will be, I want to leave it in a way that some manner of the road you can zip up, but it, I want to limit that. And I also want to get it so that sometimes you have to actually stop because you've run out of turns. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, and I think one of the things, having played on a few tables with a lot of roads, is those opponents which have a couple of vehicles, I generally find they overextend themselves. Agreed. They go, oh, I can move twice as fast. And so they'll advance all the way up. And I'm like, okay, now you're that much closer to my AT guns. Like, I think it's a really provides a, a good option if you've got a very mobile force to be able to push up and, and get some maneuverability. But at the same time, it's also a risk if you're not careful of how you do it. Yeah. Um, and, and I know that, yeah, it's certainly the vehicle rules. You know, you, many a time people have got caught out um, moving a tank up and sort of going, okay, now I'm going to pivot here and I'm going to move to here and, oh, now that's that's sort of now where I am. I mean, it's yeah. fine if you've got a turret, but now all of a sudden, potentially your sides are impacted, or exactly. next turn you've got a you've got to spend a, a a turn just trying to maneuver to then be able to push forward again. So, I think the terrain can make a big difference to how vehicles can mobilize through the board and how they can sort of dictate sort of where your opponents can move as well. Um, yeah, I, I like roads. I, I run a lot of Jeeps in my airborne force. And so if there is a road there, it can be quite useful to sort of go, okay, well, now I'm going to zip up 24 inches up to here and, and potentially be a lot closer for shooting. You know, I may not be at half range anymore or long range and, you know, sort of get rid of that negative for shooting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a man who loves a wheeled vehicle, be it my super heavy uh sorry my super indian carrier heavy seek list my um you know all my horses uh in my or in oboe blitzes in my dac list um my entire auto sahariana army i mean you name it i have a large number of wheeled vehicles if you named any of my armies i'm pretty sure i've got a pile of wheeled vehicles to accompany it i love speed and so one of the things I learned really quickly playing against players like Dave of War, um, who's incredibly tactical and like yourself, um, just because you can doesn't mean you do have to move all the way forward. Um, 
especially since vehicles often, wheeled vehicles in particular, I'm thinking of the Indian carriers, um, they're very fast. They're able to zip around. Um, but you also don't want to be too close to people. And when you have LMGs um, on your vehicles, you don't have to be that close. You zip up, you get to a good position, and all of a sudden you can fire. It's using that maneuverability to get in a good spot, not necessarily in your opponent's grill. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes it's great to put that pressure on. But I think you do a very good job of this um, with your airborne Jeeps because you're running a predominantly um, foot-slogging British Airborne list. You just have a few elements that you use to zip around to get to different parts of the board to apply pressure, but not necessarily to um, overextend yourself. Yeah. Uh, Look, I'll often throw a Jeep out there and say, you know what, it's it's a dice, but... You know, if I can go take out your AT gun or I can take out your MMG at the back line, it's totally worth it, you know. Totally. Nothing quite like an outflanking Jeep on turn four coming in, mowing down a support artillery unit and then just spending each turn just moving through a back line, chewing up bits. Um, you know, it's got the mobility and, and uh, certainly manoeuvrability to be able to get in there and, and take advantage of terrain and, and shooting lines and get right up close and sort of... 10 shots out of a recce jeep is uh it's pretty good payoff up close it is and it's also i mean historically kind of what they did they zipped up they they you know they targeted specific things and then they zipped off again i mean as you say getting up destroying you know an artillery piece by getting behind or getting alongside or behind its gun shield shooting messing them up um you know messing up your opponent's carefully set up gun um, which maybe with its fire lanes that are blocking the advance of your army, all of a sudden, if you're able to get rid of that, and then your opponent, even if they have other assets that they turn and then eliminate the Jeep, that Jeep's, you know, kind of paid for itself. Um, tactically, yeah. it's it's really put your opponent's nose out of joint. And I know some people are like, well, you know, I didn't get my points back. In my mind, it isn't just getting your points back. I don't like to think like that. I like to think, has it applied the right pressure at the right time? Have I um, you know, forced my opponent to really significantly change the way they were going to play the game um, and how they are going to get to uh, achieve the mission? Uh, and so I don't mind throwing away expensive Indian carriers that have units in them if it means that I'm able to achieve what I need to get done. Um, and I think that, I mean, playing the mission is such, I mean, it is the game. So don't get me wrong, pushing things around, saying pew pew and, you know, making tank noises is also great. But, um, you know, really knowing what you need to do and how you can stop your opponent from what they need to do is largely how I like to play the game. Um, and I know you're the same way. Yeah. I, I think the other thing with, when we talk about tables with lots of roads is it's, it's the, balance of the other terrain that's on there as well yeah um, so your your one for instance is ruined city so it's full of ruins so troops are going to be getting hard cover so you may be able to zip around with your vehicle but mm-hmm. hey you're needing if you're moving around you're going to need sixes to hit me and i don't even have to make a decision whether to go down or not and that's what's happening so you know it gives a bit of options as well yeah and just something that i've been wanting to say on a podcast um, I, I've been listening to a variety of podcasts in a variety of places, and um, I have a few Scottish buddies, Al Unicom, uh, who's been on the show before, um, old buddy, and he's he always talks about how in Scotland, you know, we 
you know, we, we take what we want because we play with more terrain. And I look at pictures of their tables and I look at pictures of our tables and I don't think that's necessarily accurate. Um, maybe a long time ago, but our tables tend to be terrain dense. Now, not every table is because we want a variety of gaming experiences, but looking at, I mean, the Bocage table that I played on at um, Op Heavy and the Alamein, at the Alamein table, uh, even the Jungle table, which had some pretty significant fire lanes, there was huge amounts of cover. And so um, I, I just don't see it. Um, would you say that we have less cover than what other people do, having looked at pictures from events? Um, certainly what I've played at. I think probably over the last two years, we've definitely seen improvement in, in quality and quantity. Mm. Um, I've probably only played maybe one or two games at most where I was on a table where I was like, just didn't have the cover. One of those was at CanCon this year. I just felt that the terrain was very um, blocky, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, very obstruction, but there wasn't a huge amount of it. And so... If you stepped out of cover, you, you're pretty much open to a lot of fire lanes and that sort of thing. So, um, and there was an airfield table there this year, uh, which was quite interesting because there was a runway running down the middle of the table, and then there was like some buildings yeah. and some planes scattered on each side. So, there was this massive open area. Um, so, that was sort of a bit of a shooting gallery. I don't think it got used a large amount in the end of the day. I think it was. Um, a lot of sort of table shuffling to sit on other ones instead. Yeah. But that wasn't the norm, though. Um, I think it just led no, to that. No, certainly not. Yeah. yeah. But I, I suppose just that's just to, for me to say uh, in general, yeah. oh, I think, you know, we've certainly got some very good tables. It's been a rarity to actually have something that wasn't appropriate. Right. So those are the exceptions, not the norm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, let's talk more broadly then. So we've sort of talked a little bit about um, how terrain works in the game. And I know a large part of a lot of bolt-action podcasting comes down to, let's talk about our lists. Let's talk about um, our forces. Let's talk about how you build a good army list. And that sort of falls into the traditional trap of um, talking about sort of treating terrain, not terrain, treating listing like it's the end-all, be-all. Um, now... As has been talked about on other podcasts, we talked about it on The Last Ghost Army, um, and at the end of The Last Cast Ice, um, I really want to go beyond that. Um, I think that um, missions are a huge part of the game. I know at one point um, in version one, the Bolt Action Alliance, which I was a part of, created the .NET rules to tighten up the version one rules, most of which were largely used to create version two of Bolt Action or, you know, are in bolt action version two. I don't know if they were used, whatever. That's another conversation. Um, but in my mind, the if you don't want to change the rules, and I know a lot of people are dead set against it, me included, the best way to change your game experience is to change the tables you're playing on and to change the missions that you're playing. Um, I know that once version two came out, a large number of people went back to just playing the mission packs in... Bolt Action 2nd Edition. And don't get me wrong, there's 12 missions in there. Plenty to play with. Um, but once you've played the game for a significant amount of time, all of a sudden you've played the same 12 missions over and over and over again. Um, and so in version one, I created 
um, most of the missions that were in what was then called the .NET uh, mission pack that were used occasionally um, in international events. And they are still up. Um, if you Google search the .NET bolt action or bolt action .NET missions pack, you can find it. And having recently played a bunch of those missions in version two, hey, they still work. Um, and so if you're looking for if you're looking for a different gaming experience for bolt action, Th those might be worth checking out, um, and not just because I wrote them. I got a lot of great feedback, and we tightened them up over time. Um, we play-tested them to death. And so, yeah, um, they're there. But, as promised, we are going to talk terrain. Now, Lee, you and I have both played on a lot of tables with a lot of terrain. Um but one of the big changes to bolt action that I really loved terrain-wise between version 1 and version 2 was the introduction of dense terrain. Um, do you want to talk about what that is, or do you want me to? Uh, you can go. Okay. So oftentimes when you see terrain on a tabletop, um, it'll come on one of those little kidney-shaped um, or however-shaped sort of area terrain, I, I guess, is how it's defined in a lot of games. And I know Bolt Action doesn't use that terminology, but I'm trying to describe it. Um, and so you'll have, like, a base, and on it you will have a bunch of tree stands, and you say, well, that isn't a group of trees, that's a forest, or those are some woods, um, or that's a bit of jungle. Um, when Lee and I were playing, there was a few um, round um, footprints that were very, that were made up of very dense bamboo stands and so we called that dense terrain um, now the way dense terrain works is on what if you are standing on one side of it and someone's unit is on the other side of it but neither one of you are in it it now blocks line of sight in version one it didn't in version two of bolt action it does you can't see through the woods past the trees so to speak um, now that changes if you go into the woods and this is where I often find people get, are confused um, about some of the rules and some of the tactics of how it works. And that's kind of where I wanted to start today. So if you are moving into dense terrain, now dense terrain can be, I've played um, on quite a few ruined tables, um, ruined city tables. It can be a, a wrecked building. It can be a collection of rocks. It, can, it doesn't have to be tree stands, for the record. So once you have a unit that, can, that moves into it, um, the unit that's into it can fire out and can be fired at. Um, but whatever the terrain is that you're standing in, if it woods, it's soft cover, so minus one to hit them. Um, two, or, or if it's dense, ter sorry, um, heavy, uh, it would be minus two to hit. Now, if you are firing at out of it. People often assume if you are standing in dense terrain and you fire out of it, you don't have a negative to hit. But that isn't the way the rules are written. Um, if you are more than an inch from the edge, you suffer the same negative to hit as the people outside. And that's to represent things getting in the way between you on the edge shooting and them shooting or them being on the outside. Um, just imagine if you're in the middle of a forest and you're shooting at people outside of the forest, well, there are still trees in the way. Um, and that's one of those rules that people often forget. So just because you're in doesn't mean that you don't have a minus to shoot out. You need to be careful about how close people are 
to the edge of that terrain. Also, people often run into and run out of that terrain. Now, the rules very clearly say that the only move that you are allowed to make in and out of those terrains is advance. Now, you can charge out of it if you want to assault someone, but the maximum distance you can go is six inches. Um, And again, that is very important because dense terrain like that um, it is basically treated like rough terrain, and it really changes the way that you maneuver around a tabletop. Um, Lee, I know I've thrown out a bunch of rules there. Do you want to talk about that at all? No, I think you've encapsulated it well. Uh, I, I think it is one of those things that people haven't played properly post version one and, and sort of haven't adjusted here and there. Um, not widespread, but I think, yeah, there's a few people here and there you come across and they're just sort of like, oh, no, hang on, this is how it works. And I think the running in and out is the big thing, though. It certainly does catch people out, uh, particularly things like ruins and forests. I know a lot of other game systems, they don't sort of have that negative for shooting out. Um, so, you know, if you play a few different game systems, it is one of those little intricacies that can catch people out. Definitely. And it is also important that it counts as rough ground. And that means that wheeled vehicles just can't advance into it at all. You can't move through them whatsoever. Um, and that's what I was talking about with my Auto-Sahariana list. Um, we, when I was playing Bocage, for example, um, is rough ground. I mean, clearly, and it, I would say the way I was playing it with my opponent is that it is um, dense terrain up until you move up, butt up against it, you can't see through it. Um, clearly, if you're trying to look through uh, a well-made bocage board, you actually can't see through those hedges. Um, And there's actually stone walls at the bottom of it, so it's not like, you know, there's a few thin trees. It's really dense stuff. Um, But it means that um, wheeled vehicles are really limited when it comes to this stuff. Um, And so, again, when you're playing area terrain, you need to keep that in mind. Um, But, yeah, that, that was a really big change that... I've noticed quite a few people aren't entirely playing correctly. Um, when people are playing in this cover as well, um, again, it's up to 50% of your squad. So if more, if half or more of your squad is standing in the area terrain, the whole squad gets the benefit. Um, but you need to remember that when you are pulling casualty models off. Um, I know I, I flat-footed uh, one of my opponents uh, on the weekend when I was playing, and they pulled a couple of casualty models off, but they pulled them from the wrong side of the unit, and all of a sudden, the unit, more than 50% of the unit, was out of cover. And it, it because they were, they were carefully pulling up which weapons um, they wanted to lose out of the unit, they neglected to remember which side of the, you know, how much of the unit was in cover for my next order dice, and I was able to just plow into them with, um, with one of my Auto Sahariana trucks, which had a machine gun and a light auto cannon, and I was able to just really smash out a bunch of casualties because all of a sudden my opponent wasn't in hard cover anymore. Um, and yes, I, you could you could make the argument, well, that's gamey, but so is pulling off the weapon system that you don't want to lose. Um, so again, it, it's just part of the tactics of the game. One of those things you have to remember. Um, so even when you're moving units up, you may want to cogniz- you know, think, okay, now the guys who are sticking out of cover, can I afford to lose those guys? Um, do I keep, who do I keep in cover? Who do I have moving out? Um, 
And it's just one of those things that if you think about it before you do it, it can really make a difference. Um, Lee, I know that you usually just do it automatically having played against you. I don't think I've ever seen you in that situation. Um, is that something you consciously think about when you're playing? Yeah, I, I think whenever I'm setting up on a table uh, and doing a sort of initial deployment or working out what my sort of first opening couple of turns are going to be, I'm always looking at the terrain. It's like, oh, what's that going to do? Can I run up to that in the first turn and then second turn advance into it, get the cover, be, be able to shoot out of it? You know, Do I need to move butt up against something so I can then assault over? Things like walls, if you're right up against them, you can assault over them. But if you're back, you know, a bit further back, you mm-hmm. get the cover bonus. But you can't assault someone on the other side. Um, and then, you know, one of the other rules that's interesting is if somebody might be behind, say, a little standalone wall or a barricade or something, if you can actually assault around them, so if you can make mm-hmm. a 12-inch move and still get into them, then you, you can still pull off an assault, even though you may not be able to go straight at them, for instance. Right. If you can... But even if you do that, they do get the wall. Yeah, if, if they're yeah. yeah, if they are in cover from the direction, then they they still get a cover bonus. I think the other interesting thing is the um, defensive fire. You know, it's very yes. important when or reactionary moves. If you're within six inches, your opponent doesn't get the option to have a reactionary move. Um, but if they're outside six inches, then they do. But the other important thing is if they've already activated that turn, they can't do it. It's the same as a recce move. If the model's already activated, they can't recce away. So you wait until they do something and then you launch your assault or shoot them or do whatever it is you want to do. Um, so, again, it comes down, as I said earlier, that the order that you activate certain things and, and parts of the board you can ignore because they've already activated something over there and you're like, well, I don't need to worry about activating my units there. Now I can prioritise other units and come back to those later in the turn. Exactly. And one of the things that um, I, I had come up in a game recently, it wasn't on the weekend, but in another game I was playing, I actually had to go back and reread the rules. And I realized that perhaps I haven't been playing this right this whole time uh, for second edition. So let's say I have a unit that's moved up and I'm shooting at a tank, for example, and the tank's partially in cover. Now, I'm in the tank's front arc. Normally, if I fired at it, I would be firing against its front armor. But if, for example, um, I can only see the side armor of that tank, it's like a, a weird glancing shot and the front is entirely behind line blocking cover. Um, when I shoot at that tank, even though I'm shooting at the side, A, that tank gets cover. B, um, I can still shoot it, though. It's not to a point. I've had opponents say, well, you can't see my front arc and you're in my front arc, so you can't shoot me now. No, that's not how that works. I can still see you so I can shoot you. But what the rules say in second edition is when I shoot at that tank, even though I can't see the front arc, even though I'm shooting at the side, A, it's in cover, and B, I count as shooting at its front. And the rules explicitly say that is to account for maybe a weirdly angled shot with an AT gun against armor. Um, Because in World War II, um, if you're shooting at armor straight on, that's the best way to punch through it, not sort of at an angle. That's why sloped armor is so effective, for example. Um, Just physics. Yeah, physics. But I like how the rules are very specific about how that works. Um, Because I know in version one, they weren't. Um, Lee, have you had experiences with that? Uh, Not that specific situation, no. Uh, Generally, I find tanks are generally just rolling up at me front on anyway it's usually more around 
cover discussions have they got 50 percent or not and it's sort of you know squat squat down squat down a, down a little, a little eyeball it from the point of view for a lot and sort of make a call on it um and, and i think the interesting thing with tanks is you know it's 50 percent or more so if you're talking about a, a front armor you know it's it's usually pretty clear as oh yeah it's sort of more than or less than um and then yeah side shots you know you've got to be clearly in that that side arc in order to get that benefit Absolutely. It also means that some of your big tanks <laughs> that some people might take, um, some of those late war behemoths, turns out they're uh, they're fairly hard to get cover because uh, good luck finding a barn big enough to hide behind, um, mm, sure. which, which is something to consider when putting them on the table. I know years ago I ended up playing my fr- against my first KV-2, and uh, my opponent argued vehemently that they got... Um, hard cover because they were behind a wall, but that wall barely went over, you know, barely covered two thirds of the running wheels of a KV-2, let alone the top of the hull plating, let alone the top of the wheels, let alone the giant turret that thing has. And it was going, nah, dude, sorry, that wall's really short and that tank's huge. It's like, well, I wouldn't have taken it then. It was like, well, you, you did. It's a huge tank. Um, and if you actually take the 50% into account, um, that tank was way more visible than it was hidden. Um, and it was just, if you think about it, that's, that is how it works. I can see more than half the tank, so I can see the tank. I don't have a problem with cover. Um, and I know that sometimes it comes down to rolling that D6, like they talk about in the game. If there's a, um, if there's a, you know, a dispute on a one through three, it doesn't on a four, five, six, it does. And that's what me and my opponent in that game did. Um, something else, when it's speaking of cover, um, I know this came up on the weekend and a few people had questions about it. A lot of people were rocking um, AT guns uh, and artillery pieces and light tank gun, or sorry, tank guns in general, um, infantry manned ones, as in ones that get wheeled around or towed onto the board, not attached to a vehicle itself. Um, they're an intricate part, uh, sorry, a, uh, an integral part of bolt action. You see them all over the place. I mean, they're very common in World War II tabletops. A- and yet, when you are setting these things up, you need to remember if you're shooting at it, you actually discount the crew. Um, you actually only count, you're only looking for cover-wise to the gun itself. The, the crew's discounted from that. Um, the crew are basically the casualty counters for it. Um, but then when you're dropping templates on it, for example, then you do count the crew, uh, which is a little counterintuitive and weird. But it also, for those of you who like to have historic, uh, sorry, um, scenic bases, I know Lee likes to have um, like fences and whatnot as part of his uh, gun bases um, to make them look pretty, you need to remember that crew members need to be a certain distance from the breach of the gun, which makes guns like the 88 or any of the um, Japanese crews where you can take extra crew members and you might have, you know, six or eight crew to a gun, means you're going to be huddled around the breach of that gun. Um, and it, it's a good rule to remember. So anyway, Lee, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I've certainly um, modelled my stuff not to that specification. I think there's a lot of players out there, particularly who've been around for a while, prior to second edition, uh, who did model out some nice gun crews on artillery pieces. Um, 
that aren't all within an inch. And I think it's just a case of with your opponent just being sensible around if you do get hit with HE, you know, how many people are likely to be caught under a optimal HE mm-hmm. spread around that sort of weapon. So generally, if my opponent's firing my six-pounder, for instance, it's got three crew. If they're firing a one-inch HE, we just sit there and go, okay, it's going to hit two guys. If it's a two-inch, right. you're going to hit all three, you know, that kind of thing. It's just really around, um, yeah, just being sensible about things, you know. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't had any issues with anyone at all in second ed around it. Um, and, you know, it's same thing conversely. You know, I've got to – you mount your MMG teams together, you know, if you put them all there, if you were to space them optimally, they're not going to sit there nicely, you know, looking good mm-hmm. if you're going to have them all an inch apart. But, you know, if you model it up appropriately, but it's – if you hit me with one-inch HE, but all my guys are there because I'm feeding ammo in and spotting and everything all in a tight spot, is it fair to sit there and say, well, I'm going to hit all three because they're bunched up because of modelling as opposed to if they're a regular unit, I could have – space them out and you'd only hit two so it's just one of those things i think most people are generally pretty agreeable on it yeah absolutely and it was very clearly um diagrammed and explained in the rule book it's just one of those things that unless you know to look for it you don't know it's there um kind of like shooting at the vehicle rules i know that i came a lot of us still have misconceptions from first edition or other game systems we play yeah um because a lot of bolt action is fairly intuitive um Sometimes you just assume it works a certain way, and then you actually go to look and realize, oh, oh, that isn't how that works. Oops. Um, And it really does make a big difference. Well, I think that kind of brings us to the end of where we need to get to today. I know that we haven't talked about buildings or bunkers, but I feel like those are some of the most straightforward rules in the game. I think that maybe, I mean, it's important to remember that you can only advance... um, Oh, sorry, you can't advance into a building. You have to run um, to go into a building. But you can advance and you can run or assault out of a building. Um, oftentimes, those are confused um, and people move into a building and try and shoot out. Or they say you can't shoot when you leave a building. You definitely can. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for listening to Cast Dice. I'm sorry our time has sort of come to an end. Um, if you happen to be in Melbourne around, uh, well, on March 18th and you would like to watch some bolt action being played, please come to Good Games in the city and come look at Operation Wolf. Lee sadly won't be playing, but um, you will have an opportunity to see him that afternoon as he is flying back in. Uh, Lee, sorry that you can't play, man. would love to have you. That's okay. I try to make as many events as I can, but can't make them all. That's it, brother. That's it. Um, well, look, coming up in the next couple of weeks, there's going to be um, a lot of content coming out of this podcast channel. Um, if you haven't seen already, um, I have been lucky enough to be chosen to be the new host of Warlord's brand new official podcast. Uh, and in addition to that, um, the Ghost Army podcast is back, back full time. So I've had a lot of people ask, is Cast Dice going to continue? How does that work? Well, yes, there is a limited number of hours in the day and um, how many hours I can podcast. And I should probably play a game every now and then, not just podcast about them. So the way things are going to work is um, Cast Dice will be roughly every other week and you will see the Ghost Army and you will see the Warlord cast roughly once a month. So what you're going to get is the same amount of content Um, As far as hours of me uh, podcasting, they're just going to be maybe on different casts. 
But, uh, as always, if you would, would like to say something, uh, if you have feedback about one of these episodes, I know there's been a lot of great feedback coming in about the Warlord cast, um, good and bad. Um, <laughs> apparently someone said I was grading. Um, oops, guess I can't change being American. Um, but uh, if you would like to give us feedback, please... Uh, find us on Facebook uh, under Land O Misfit Toys, home of the Cast Dice podcast, or just type Cast Dice, C A S T Dice. Uh, I know a few people have asked, how can I subscribe to the other podcasts? At the moment, if you just go to iTunes and type Cast Dice, you'll find the channel. iTunes is being stubborn and is not letting me change the name at the moment um, of the network, but it is a What is a Battle podcast network. Um, look for either cast dice or what is a battle and you will find us anyway uh thank you very much for listening ladies and gentlemen i hope that your dice run hot your beverages run cold and more than anything that you're having fun playing games thank you very much for joining us thank you very much lee all right brad we'll catch you next time definitely good night Are gone and they're trapped by